This morning, we're kicking off a series we'll be in for the next few weeks on the will of God and vocation. And uh, we're going to hopefully unpack some of the intricacies that comes with the topic of the will of God. In our young adulthood, we are asking big questions concerning the will of God, are we not? We are wrestling with the will of God and calling and vocation, are we not? This is a big issue for all of us, and so we're going to ease into it, take our time with it, and see what the Holy Spirit, through his scriptures and through conversations amongst ourselves, uh, will highlight as we look and go through the series titled Call. So uh, this morning, I want to title this message, The Transcendent Calling, The Transcendent Calling, and uh, as we enter in this morning, let's just quiet ourselves And bring ourselves anew to the Lord. Let's uh, chuck some of the stuff that we've been carrying at his feet and come to him anew. Come to him with open hands and pure hearts. So let's quiet ourselves and present ourselves to the Lord and allow him to have priority and first word this morning. We say, come Holy Spirit, awaken us. The psalmist repeatedly, time and time and time again, says and gives the proclamation, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And repeat the next part if you know it. For his love endures forever. So we give thanks this morning. We thank you for breath in our lungs, O God. We thank you for health in our bodies. We thank you for food, our daily bread, quite literally. We thank you for your joy. We thank you for your life. We thank you for the sun. We thank you for the mountains. We thank you that we can live here in Colorado Springs. We thank you for a phenomenal church like New Life Church that we get to be a part of. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for everything that you're doing in our lives. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you're sending us into a new season, this entry into the fall semester. We thank you that we can look back on the summer and see your craftsmanship on it. We can see traces of your providence, traces of your love, traces of your work upon our lives. And we ask that you would continue it. And as we look at your scriptures and as we jump into this huge topic that is the will of God, very applicable to us young adults in this season. We ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would instruct us. And we ask that as we sit under your scriptures and give you first priority and first word and final say in our lives, we ask that you would be pleased and glorified and honored through it. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. And we pray all of these things in the glorious name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the young adults said, amen, amen. Uh, am I out of line if I say that I abhor playing darts? I don't know, does anybody really even like darts? Or is that something that's just on the wall of restaurants and random things? David Liao likes darts. Great. Okay. 
Um, I, I, I have enough self-awareness to know that I'm far too competitive to play darts, and I avoid anything like the plague of things I'm not good at. Any competitive people resound with that? Yeah, you just, you don't touch anything if you know you're not good at it. Well, that's the case with me and darts, and I think it's because of the thing that I call the ominous bullseye. Like the whole game is around this one little part of the board that is impossible for me to hit. So I just avoid it like the plague. And I play bowling instead where I can have bumpers and I can have 10 different targets I can hit. I hate, hate, hate that ominous bullseye. Well, I think with the will of God, sometimes that can feel like the ominous bullseye in our lives where we think career We think relationship. We think long-term trajectory in life. We think these things uh, and these decisions that we're making in young adulthood now as the ominous bullseye, I have to get this right. I think we can think of the will of God so often as this thing that we desire to be in and we desire to live in and we desire pure-heartedly and wholeheartedly to get right. Yet with that comes a pressure to just hit that bullseye. And I think in our young adulthood, we are, the questions that we ask really translate to this deep feeling of, uh, you know, fear sometimes and frustration and the wrestling that we encounter in trying to, to make these big decisions perfectly and to just align in God's will to where we need to. Some of these questions uh, are a bit like this. First question, uh, some of us may ask, am I called to singleness or to be married? Dear God, let it not be singleness. <laughs> Dear God, let 1 Corinthians 7 not apply to me. I want to be married. I want to have kids. If that's you, you're probably not called to singleness, just to hint. Second question, maybe if you do feel like you're married, is who am I supposed to marry? Who am I supposed to? God, show me the one. God, show me. Okay, she leaves me a poke on Facebook tonight, and she's the one. Okay. She responds to my many flirtatious texts and the wink emoji. She's the one laying out fleeces. Another question that we may ask is this, kind of along a different line. What career field am I supposed to pursue? Um, These years of young adulthood, I'm going to be blazing my own trail in some ways, we feel. I need to have a firm grasp on what I'm going to be doing. I can't work at a bank my entire life if I don't like finances. I can't be working at Starbucks every single waking year of my life if I don't love coffee. What am I supposed to pursue? What career field? And the final question I think some of us may ask is this. Uh, What freaking major should I choose? My gosh. How am I supposed to decide? I have no idea. Those freshmen in the house who are joining us this morning, you know full well, these are the wrestling sometimes that we encounter. What freaking major should I choose, God? Please make it clear. And I think, again, our questions underline the fact that we long to be in the will of God. 
We long to get it right. And I think there's enough of us in this room, the vast majority of us, I think would say that the way we're living our lives, or at the very least, the way we want to live our lives, is under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want God to have final say. We want to be led by God. We want to live life in such a way where we can put our stamp on it and our seal of confidence and say that uh, where I'm living right now is smack dab in the will of God. Many of us are in that position, and so naturally these questions that we ask, I think, lend themselves to those feelings. But um, I want to process this before we go any further at our tables. I want to talk through this together with our first discussion question, and that is this. Where in life do you most feel the pressure to be in the will of God? What area, what thing, what portion or facet of your life do you so desire and feel the pressure to be in the will of God. Have fun, get nitty gritty, go. All right. Not a hard discussion to engage in, huh? It's like we all just started plumbing the depths immediately. I think for this, uh, you know, at our table we were talking, there's, there's some nuance here because I think some of us have... Um, a theology of the will of God that we're very comfortable and confident with and in. Um, And thus, the decisions that we make feel less of trying to hit a bullseye and more of an act of discernment. And I think there are others of us that, that just wrestle with this concept of the will of God and, and what Scripture has to say and what we were brought up maybe being taught. And now that our, in our young adulthood, we're starting to struggle with and questioning. Um, so I think there's a lot of gradient here to consider. But I, I would say that the, the biggest things that we're wrestling with are relationships, right? Obviously, the spouse uh, trying to discern um, for those of us who believe that there is the one um, okay, let me find the one for those of us who maybe don't necessarily believe that, want to f- walk in wisdom and walk in discernment. Um, vocation, my gosh, is a huge one. Um, figuring out w- why you were put on this earth in the first place. What work were you hardwired to do uh, and spend the rest of your life in? That's a big one. And so there's a number of things that we're wrestling with, but I think Really, I want to lay the groundwork this morning for the rest of this series because uh, these things are good and right to process and good and right to wrestle with. We just did that. We will continue doing that. And we are going to look in the weeks to come at specific things regarding this question. Um, You know, finding God and God's will in vocation, finding God's will in relationships, and that sort of thing. But I think before we really delve into the intricacies of what these, this looks like, contextualized to each of these areas of our lives, I think that we first um, need to get our priorities straight. I think we first need to define what the most important will of God, vocation, call on our lives is, and then work from the center out. Um, Because really the fact of the matter is the questions that we so often ask, reality check, are not points of emphases in scripture. What job we're going to work is not necessarily a point of emphasis in Scripture. The person we're going to marry, the specific individual, is not necessarily an emphasis in Scripture. The uh, geographical location where we're going to live is not necessarily an emphasis in Scripture. We don't see in Scripture 
the great apostle Paul saying, yeah, you better discern what job you need to work or you're royally going to screw up the rest of your life. And we don't see the great uh, sage that is Solomon saying, hey, you better find the one or consider your life over. Uh, Train wreck coming if you don't find the one. Uh, Hey, you better make sure, Peter might say, that you don't move to Kansas when you should stay in Colorado. Yikes. I mean, Kansas? Really? We just don't, obviously, I'm embellishing here, but we don't see hard and fast teachings to have to pinpoint these specifics in our lives. Instead, we see a much more transcendent and overarching calling and vocation that God beckons us into and invites us into. And we see it really take a number of shapes and be put to a number of different forms and language uh, throughout the New Testament specifically. But we see one shape and substance in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, a very well-known passage of scripture for us when Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if a salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, very familiar. But Jesus is speaking in the definitive identity that we have, in the definitive vocation that we are beckoned into and called into as the people of God, you are salt. You are light. You are a city on a hill. By the way, you being mine, Jesus says, uh, is testimony in and of itself. There is an innate and inherent calling that comes with being the people of God, and that is showcasing the goodness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to all creation. The city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Paul uh, puts it into slightly different terms in 2 Corinthians two fourteen to 16. He says it this way. But thanks be to God who is in Christ always leads us into triumphal procession and, th- and through us spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to other a fragrance from life to life. Keep that up. My gosh, Paul, that's kind of harsh. Similar to Jesus, the very nature of you being the people of God is a fragrance of death to those who willingly harden their hearts and choose to reject God. And is on, on the completely uh, flip side is a fragrance of life to life. That the people of God are encouraged and built up. And there's this fragrance of the nature of God that really is inherent to us as believers. Again, this vocation of ministry. This vocation of us being on full display for all creation to see. And for us to step into, once again, our God-given vocation as the imago Dei, the image of God. This is what God looks like. This is what God smells like, figuratively. Figuratively, not literally. This is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Yet again, Paul later in 2 Corinthians, for a final passage, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 
says it yet again in a different term. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Thanks be to God for that. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Perhaps the clearest articulation of the transcendent calling of all believers. And I would argue this, that scripture makes it clear that we have two callings that transcend all others. One, to be reconciled to God, and two, to engage our sphere of the world with the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, this sounds like very grand terms. How many of you don't like grand, you know, oh, it's this, and okay, well, what does that mean exactly? Um, really, this translates in, in, to our lives in a really simple way, because we are called, first and foremost, to be reconciled to God. We all can attest to the reality that we are horrendously sinful, terribly, terribly, gut-wrenchingly sinful, that even in our best efforts, the great prophet Isaiah would say that our, that our righteousness is like filthy rags. We can try and give God the best that we possibly can, but it is actually trash. It's garbage. And so we were called to first be reconciled to God. This is the restoration of the Imago Dei that we just referenced. It is a return to Eden. It is a return to proximity. It is a return to intimacy. It is a return to relationship with the Father. All of us would say, yeah, obviously, okay. But the second, Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians, really uses these two hands in hand. And then he says, you are also ministers of reconciliation. You are those who are fragrance. You are those who are, like our Lord and Savior said, salt and light in a city on a hill. You are on this earth to showcase the goodness and the love and the life of the Father and act as conduits through which people are reconciled back to the Father. You are those who are on this planet, the church, those who, who uh, as Paul says in Colossians, showcases the manifest wisdom of the Father. You are put on this earth to be a witness and a beacon of light to the Father. And I think the second part is where we really get tied up because so often we can associate ministry and evangelism and articulation of the gospel kind of in aggressive fashions. You sit down with a person. Do you know Jesus? Dude, what? Do you know Jesus? You know, like these things that we maybe have been taught growing up, like cold evangelism. Just boom, let it fly. And then have this, you know, arduous and really combative uh, conversation about the faith. I'm not so sure that that works in post-modernity anymore, by the way. And I think we can look at evangelism and ministry of reconciliation in some kind of aggressive terms, but how does Jesus articulate it? You are salt. You are light. That's not to say don't do anything because he gets to that later. He says that you are, by your very nature of being redeemed, salt. 
You're a preservative of righteousness here on the earth. You are light. You are a beacon of hope in the darkness. And you ought to let your good works shine before men. That is the action. Let your good works, allow yourself to be a beacon of light and life and reflect the nature of God to the people around you. Uh, being reconciled to God and engaging in the ministry of reconciliation. Does this not sound an awful lot like the two greatest commandments? Love God. Love people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't allow any sin to fester in your lives, but allow every facet of your being to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Oh, and the natural expression of that second greatest commandment is going to be to love people to sacrifice, to pour yourself out, to be very uncomfortable sometimes in the extravagant love that Jesus has modeled. Love God, reconciliation, love people, ministry of reconciliation. Is this connecting? Are you guys with me? The ministry of reconciliation that we are called to and the reconciliation that we partake in the Father. These are the two transcendent callings of our lives. And I want to pose the second question to us for us to really process and nuance this on a practical level at the tables. The question is this, what does being reconciled to God and engaging in the ministry of reconciliation look like for you specifically and personally? Fire away. Go for it. All right, young adults. Okay. So I, I think this, I think this question's interesting because the first, and it's not because I wrote it. <laughs> I think this question's interesting, you guys. I think it's interesting. I know I just seem pompous. I'm sorry, you guys. I think it's interesting. I keep saying I think it's interesting. I need to use a different phrase. I think that the thing about this question is that reconciliation to God, I think we can write that off pretty quickly. Well, it's already done. I'm already reconciled. But in the theological framework and in the New Testament framework, we see reconciliation to God really having two shapes. One word is justification. The definitive, you are a son, you are a daughter, you are mine. Now live in that identity and have the Holy Spirit to empower you in that. But there's another shape that is sanctification. That is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. That's why every single one of us can attest to the reality that there's still sin in our lives even after we've received Jesus. Because it's justification sealed work of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians, but then it's sanctification, the ongoing reconciliation work of the Holy Spirit. And the work of reconciliation uh, is not one that we ought to write off. It is one that we ought to embrace wholeheartedly, allowing every facet of our lives to come under Christ's lordship. It's saying no to sin. It's letting go of that grudge that we have against that person. It's letting the Lord uproot that deep, addictive habit that we have that's sinful. Being reconciled to God. And the ministry of reconciliation, man, that's a, that's a series in and of itself. How do we showcase God to the world? But really, when we look at it in these terms, uh, we start to see vocation and calling less of a specific destination and more of an ongoing work, don't we? 
Because then if we view ourselves as reconciled and being reconciled and ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation, then we begin to see how our 16 hours a week at Starbucks really starts to take a different shape. That, wow, I can be the fragrance of Christ right here. It means in our psychology class at UCCS or at Pikes Peak or at USAFA. I knew it was coming. It, it takes on a different shape, doesn't it? Because it's not, oh, one day I'm going to get this job. And one day maybe I can marry this kind of person. But more of an ongoing partnership with the Lord in his work upon the earth. And thus, where we're living now and what we're doing now requires faithfulness and requires diligence. But as we wrap up, you know, what does this mean? Okay, great. Reconciled ministry of reconciliation. But what does this mean for our specific vocational trajectories? What does this mean for our specific longings for clarity on the will of God regarding a person that you're considering marrying? What does this mean when it comes down to the specifics of our life? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because uh, I would suggest this, that the specific trajectories of our lives must always find their roots and ultimate fulfillment in kingdom purposes. That if the transcendent calling and the greatest calling of our lives before anything else gets their legs is reconciled to God and engaging in the ministry of reconciliation, then really every facet of our lives and these specific trajectories must find their roots back to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They must find their roots in an ultimate culmination and fulfillment in kingdom purposes. And when we begin to view vocation, calling, and the will of God in these terms— we begin to see that our desires are not an end in and of themselves. I think like we can so often treat them. Again, destination driven. Oh, if I can just get that, then dot, dot, dot. If I can just be married, dot, dot, dot. If I could just fill in the blank for whatever is applicable and pertinent in your life. Less of a destination and an end and more of a means to bring Christ glory, to partner with him in in establishing and inaugurating his kingdom here on earth, the means of our vocational identity and specifics to the end of glory to the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and the establishment and inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth that is coming. Does that make sense? Less destination, more partnership and inauguration of kingdom living roots to and fulfillment in the specifics of the kingdom. And only, I think, within this framework do our desires and our longings for specific vocational clarity, specific relational clarity, whatever it is, I think that's when they find their appropriate and proper context. Because outside of that, it can become, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about this in the weeks to come, idolatry. A vocation, a desire, a calling, I must have it, my precious. Really? Because that's sounding like you're viewing that as an end and not the means. You as a broken vessel being used to the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we can wrestle and we can wrestle and we can stress and we can worry and we can fret about the days to come, about these big decisions that have to be made in our young adulthood. But here, as we conclude, we hear the comforting and assuring voice of our good shepherd. In Matthew 6, when he says this, Therefore, do not be anxious. Saying, what are we going to eat, bro? 
dude, what job am I going to get? What, what are we going to wear? What are we going to do? What is my life going to look like? What is the specificity of my situation going to entail next year when I graduate from UCCS? Crap. The Gentiles seek after these things. That's not you. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, young adults. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Don't worry, the good shepherd says. Don't stress, don't, wor- don't get all riled up about these specific needs of your life, but seek the kingdom. Seek reconciliation and seek ministry of reconciliation. Seek the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Seek uh, the goodness of the Father in your lives, and all of these things will be added to you. It is an inherent assumption that these things will align in our lives. Jesus operates under the deep assumption that if you seek the kingdom, just chill. This thing's really not your game anyway. This thing is not you. This thing is the Lord. This thing is the Father. And as we surrender the specifics of our lives, and as we keep in step with him, and as we say, you know what, God? Take this longing for a spouse. Let it come under your lordship. Take this desire for a specific occupation Here it is, under your lordship. Then we find that the crooked paths in our lives become straight. And the kingdom is established in our lives. And our desires for all of these specific callings of God become contextualized. And they find their proper place. And we are living under the canopy of the transcendent calling. Amen. Let it be so with us, Lord Jesus. Let us be people who are absolutely obsessed with bringing you glory. Let the words of our lips and the uh, conviction of our heart be the words that were proclaimed by John the Baptist, more of him and less of me. Let that be us. Let us be the people who say more of you, God, less of me. If I don't find vocational clarity, if I don't get relational traction, if these things in my life don't work out and I'm still reconciled and somehow being used by you to be the fragrance of Christ, then all is well because this is not about us. This is about you, Father. This is about your kingdom coming. This is about you ransoming for yourself a body and a bride who you are going to be absolutely enthralled with and are enthralled with and continually will be in the life of the world to come for all eternity. Let it be so in us, God. Let all of our lives come under your lordship and your rule and your reign. And young adults, as we dismiss, pray that the Lord would bless you and he would keep you and be gracious to you. And may he make his countenance shine upon you and grant you peace. And may you be settled and may you not be anxious for anything. And may you be confident of the fact that as you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, then the little sub-vocations and callings of your lives will be added to you. We pray these things in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.